Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Perkins Platform. This is a solutions-oriented podcast and live radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate 30 minutes to explore topics of interest for leaders and professionals in education and a variety of other disciplines. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. Um, I'm delighted to be here uh, again tonight uh, for a conversation with a very, very special guest, as usual. Uh, I do want to say I want to welcome so many people we've uh, had expanded on our kind of the podcast reach. And there have been so many people that have joined us, not just from the United States. You know, one of the great things about having this podcast is that they can tell where people are downloading or or listening in from. So we have, while 80% of the people who listen are from the United States, we have so many people listening from other countries, all of Western Europe, Brazil, Argentina, Australia, New Zealand, just to name a few. And we're excited that uh, people have found these topics to be of interest. And so I think part of the reason that they're interested is because we have such great guests uh, who are talking about leadership topics. And tonight is no exception. We have uh, tonight the founder of Mott Hall Bridges Academy, someone who's been honored alongside First Lady Michelle Obama with the Black Girls Rock Change Agent Award. She's had, she has uh, an amazing TED Talk and where she talks about her, her journey to opening a school. Uh, I am pleased to introduce to you Dr. Nadia Lopez. Welcome, Nadia. Thank you so much, Brian. I'm so excited to be here and to engage in a, a good conversation with you. Yeah, you yeah, you know. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just thanking the audience as well for being here as well. Yes, thank you. Um, and so just I know that there, and I know you said I didn't have to thank you, but I do have to thank you for the work that you're doing, but also just taking time out of your day. And there's so many people that I know that are going to benefit from hearing from you tonight. So we're excited. Uh, I just want to know, I, I, before we get into the work, I want to know about you. You know, tell me a little bit about where you're from, where you attended school, because I'm see, I'm trying to build this up because I, I want to understand how you got to this work. So, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about yourself. So I am um, born and raised in Brooklyn. My parents are, um, my mom from Guatemala, my dad is from Honduras, and so always known as a young child how important education um, was going to be in terms of liberation. That's how mm-hmm. my dad saw it, and he always instilled that in me. Prior to entering um, public education, I was enrolled in a black independent school, mm-hmm. and that was primarily because my parents felt it was important for me to know the history of what black people endured in this country because their experiences from where they came from wasn't necessarily going to be the same as what I would experience living here in America. So I got to um, learn at the age of two about um, my history 
um, and really to understand, you know, how to be an advocate and, um, and to know the difference of what is truth and what is, you know, has been removed. Mm-hmm. And so once I got into public school, um, my mother was a strong advocate in being really, really involved. And like with most um, schools in urban communities, she was one of three or four parents who would attend PTAs, but she was diligent about making sure that every teacher that I had knew how to communicate with her. And mm-hmm. even though she couldn't assist me with my work, she wanted to make sure that she was present. Um, and so, you know, I went through public school in Brooklyn um, and then eventually went to high school in Harlem at A. Philip Randolph um, and then pursued a nursing career um, at Wagner College. Mm-hmm. And I knew that wasn't my calling, but mm-hmm. I understood that through the nursing profession, you tend to learn holistically how to support people, how to mm-hmm. listen, how to, you know, ask good questions. Um, I went into the telecommunication field by working at Verizon um, and mm-hmm. quickly realized business is about who you know, but understanding that you are always in service of others. So the commu- the customer service component was beneficial in education. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I had my daughter, and I realized that the most important person outside of my parents, um, my mother and my dad, um, the individuals who had the most influence were actually the educators in my life. And I just thought about who would those individuals be. And in speaking to a lot of my colleagues, they would always complain about schools and the lack of um, teachers really caring for their mm-hmm. students. And the fact that you would go into a school and you didn't even know who the teachers were anymore. And mm-hmm. I just felt saddened by that. Um And I decided I wanted to go into education. I said, you know, my daughter's going to be in the school system, and I want to just know from the belly of the beast what's really happening. Sure, sure. And um, that's really what, you know, spawned the idea of (laughs) education is a corporate entity filled with a lot of individuals who can make change if they had the audacity to do so. Um, if they understood the purpose that was put into them by God, and they mm-hmm. put people first. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, that doesn't often happen. Um, so the people who are the disruptors, as I have been named many times, are the ones who speak <laughs> out against what you see to children, um, especially those who are coming from black and brown communities, sure. um, and the lack of support that exists and how it's intentionally devised for us to fail as adults and how it's intentionally devised for children to end up in the um, school to prison pipeline. Mm-hmm. Well, before we even get to, like you said, to the, to that piece of it, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued by the fact that um, you, you know, so I've had a number of people that have been on the show that um, is the, have been, I should say the, the product of, uh, immigrant parents and come uh, who come to the United States and have a very strong understanding of how important education is. And it sounds like that, that was no different for you, that that was very much a part of the messaging you got. And so I was going to ask you, because I did see in your profile that um, you had 
um, you have you have a degree in nursing. And so I was yes. going to say, how how did you get there? Now I know, kind of theoretically, there's not a huge leap because you and you pointed it out. Being in the service of mm-hmm. others and, and caring for people individually, it's definitely there's a strong relationship between that education and the medical field. Um, were there any uh, opportunities that you had, so to speak, where you um, you were inspired by someone uh, as a child or as even as you were working on that degree in nursing that kind of shifted your mindset to go, you know what? And, and I, you did say, you realize this is not for me. Uh, were there any influences that you ran across as, that helped you make that decision of what, how you wanted to play a role in and making an impact in your community? Absolutely. When I was um, in middle school, well, back then we used to call it junior high school, um, my parents separated. And it was devastating for Mm -hmm. me simply because I was a daddy's girl. And the administrators of the building, they would always stay late. They created such a safe space that myself and other young people who may have been going through something at home could stay with them. Um, And so I always had the invitation of staying late, and and they would drop me off, and my mom trusted them um, and had good relationships with them. Um, And so I just knew school to be a safe haven, and I saw black administrators seeing the possibility in children who were in a community like Fort Greene, because I lived in Crown Heights, but I traveled to Fort Greene, and, Fort, and the school we were at was, was a distance, like a couple of blocks away from Brooklyn Tech. And at that time, Brooklyn Tech had the Decepticons, which was, you know, a notorious gang at the time. But mm-hmm. my mother really did not concern herself about the gang. She was like, I'm sending you there because it's one of the best schools. Um, right. And so because of that, and I was surrounded by what I consider activists in education mm-hmm. when it was time for me to even think about well what grade level would you be interested in for me immediately I wanted the middle school child mm-hmm. because I felt like they go through so much and oftentimes they fall through the cracks because people aren't paying attention and you know we the growth spurt that happens the change in adolescence Middle school kids are the most, they're children, but they want to think that they're grown and they're so misunderstood. Mm-hmm. You know, they're complicated. And so I just felt like what they did for me at that time is in many ways they saved my life because I could have easily spiraled and lived a life in the streets because that's what we were used to. Um And I also could have, you know, fallen by the wayside, and my grades could have dropped considerably at that time, but Mm -hmm. I had people who really cared. And so when I thought about education, I thought about them, but also my elementary schools. It was such a caring environment. I know every single one of my teachers' names, you know, when I got into second grade in in elementary school, I had Ms. Paoni, then Ms. Burns, then Ms. Veroni, then Ms. Sykes. And then Miss O'Leary. And I can remember every single one of those teachers, how they look, how they set up their classrooms, because they cared so much. 
mm-hmm. and they weren't necessarily none of them were um, teachers of color, but they were mm-hmm. so invested in the community that you didn't even see color with them. You just saw individuals who loved you. Mm-hmm. And so that's what really got me inspired to want to go into education. Sure, sure. So so you were inspired because you wanted to replicate for a lot of children the experience you had in that way. But but tell mm-hmm. me, because I hear I hear a lot of people saying different things about it. Not and we're not talking about your school yet, but but as you as you look now, um, is that different? Are are places that you remember? No. Okay. Not necessarily. And unfortunately, it's because the way the school leaders are allowed to lead buildings and the way teachers are not allowed to have the autonomy to be creative because they're so constricted by the standards and mm-hmm. state assessment and the evaluation process. Like there's so much, there's so much punitive um, efforts that are being made on every level to really stifle the beauty of what education used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and you find a lot of people aren't willing to be convicted in doing what's in the best interest of children. Mm-hmm. You know, I came from, um, for those who may be listening, the, the, the generation of administrators in my life, you know, it's Adelaide Sanford, is Dr. Lester mm-hmm. Young, is mm-hmm. Renee Young, you know, Dr. Renee Young, it's mm-hmm. um, R.G. Johnson, and um, just a lineage of so many amazing um, Jerome Harris, individuals who just, they didn't, they were intentional about, we don't, the zip code doesn't matter as long as we are dedicated and committed to providing quality education, right? Mm-hmm. And so you don't see that happening anymore. People are concerned about where they're going to go next in their career. Mm-hmm. They're concerned about being white. Um, and they're also concerned about just surviving because, I mean, I've been through it as an administrator, how you can get targeted because you want the best for kids, because you mm. are highlighting who is, you know, actually in the ones behind why kids have been suffering with the inequities in education. You know, when you become yeah. that threat, they come after you. That's and right. People That's are, right. I, you know, I want my check, so I'm going right. to stay quiet, and I get it. But I didn't get into education for the check, mm-hmm. so I was going to be loud and strong and proud you. about it. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. And and you know tonight's show is is constructed on something that you've said a long time and over and over again. I built a school to close a prison, and yeah. now now if that doesn't make you a target, I don't know what will. <laughs> Um, uh, there are a lot of reasons uh, that people don't want that. I know it, it does, it's not said often and certainly not said often enough, the connection and, and the way so much has, is done to keep just communities and, and generations in this cycle 
of going from school to prison. And I'm glad yet another door is closed on the prison because you built this school. So now I want to hear, uh, how did you go about opening this school? So your school, Mott Hall Bridges Academy, you know, you're the founder of that mm-hmm. school. Um, so now tell me a little bit. I know you, uh, you, you did go back after nursing and got a degree in education, I think special ed, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so you had, and you, you got your doctorate in leadership. How did you decide, okay, I'm going to open a school and what were some of the steps you took to make that a reality? Well, you know, at the time, Mike Bloomberg was the mayor and he was getting a lot of flack because of the charter school movement and allowing many of them to operate within the confines of public school. Um, And so he decided to create the small school movement in which he would allow individuals who are either aspiring to be leaders or currently leaders to present proposals um, to open up small schools. And I happened to benefit from that. I wrote a proposal that was focused on, um, at the time, STEM. I changed it eventually to STEAM because I felt the arts was just equally as important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that with by writing this proposal with a group of individuals, presenting it to the Department of Education. Um, and in 2009, or to, going into 2010, it was approved. Um, mm. And so essentially what happened is I ended up having to collate in a build, co-locate in a building with another two schools that existed. One was already a, uh, what we call D75, that's primarily special needs scholars. Mm-hmm and a K through eight school. Um, And it was located in Brownsville. It's still located in Brownsville. And um, (laughs) there was nothing easy about opening the school. There were a lot of misconceptions. People thought I was actually a charter school. And there were oftentimes a lack of understanding that I wasn't here to take anything away from the school, I was uh, from the community. I was here to add value, and mm-hmm. you know, because of that, it took time for me to build relationships. Um, I was out in the community, in the projects, at the corner store, at the bargain hunters. I was everywhere. So <laughs> you know, I gave my street cred because I was I was that person who I wasn't worried about the project because I lived so close to so many of them and had gone into Fort Greene, Albany, wherever you, Marcy Project. So that, I didn't fear the projects. And so, you know, I gained the respect from the families and the scholars, but that was kind of the step. So it was the opportunity that was presented. And then just, you know, aligning myself, identifying who were the strong people who, um, who knew leadership, who understood social-emotional learning and counseling for young children, especially black and brown um, children who lived in poverty, Um, the importance of partnerships and and really identifying who those individuals would be. And also having faith Mm -hmm. because it required a vision. It required a vision that I believe God just trusted me with um, and seeing the possibilities in a community that nobody wanted to serve and at a time when 
even though I was given the opportunity to open the school, the same people who were saying you have been approved were the same ones who were telling me that I wasn't going to succeed. Mm-hmm. So it was very interesting. Yeah. You, you know, I something you just said made me think about what I keep hearing over and over is that in these challenging contexts, the leaders who found schools just as you did say the same thing. No one wanted to do this here. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I know that you're in a very difficult um, context, um, Brownsville in Brooklyn. Um, Why do you think, is it, is it just the difficulty of, you know, the, the circumstances, the historic levels of poverty, the historic levels of disengagement, but also disenfranchisement. So is that what it is? What is it that makes people not want to be in Brownsville? You know, it's honestly, it has such a bad rap. And hmm. I'm like growing up, Brownsville was just that place that you didn't go. It didn't matter what part of Brooklyn you were from because that their slogan never ran, never will. It's true to heart. Um, it has been a community that has been intentionally broken and made to feel helpless. And when you take people's basic rights of getting quality food, living in conditions that are humane, mm-hmm. um, having access to, you know, financial literacy, being treated as human beings. Like, I've, I've witnessed, before I was a principal, I was an assistant principal, and I witnessed how there was an intention to break these people down mm. and to make them feel like this was normalized behavior. And I was I like, this ain't it. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is not mm-hmm. how people live. And they do not leave their community unless they're going to, oftentimes to court, um, to, you know, something, but it's not related to the experience of exploration or Mm -hmm. being embedded in culture. So they Mm -hmm. don't know that there's better beyond the landscape of where they're at, and they're not taught how they can bring whatever they learn outside back and impact their own community. Where where's the leadership? Where's the city leadership? Is, is there, there people is don't? Oh, okay. I mean, let me <laughs> say that there, there, oh. is, there is leadership, right? Mm-hmm. The leadership exists, but it's so hard. Like mm-hmm. I, I I know plenty of leaders who like um, Alika Samuels. She before she became a leader, I knew her because she was she was working with um, Greg Jackson. And mm-hmm. she was doing the the work. I knew um, Latrice Walker when she was working for Congressman sure. um, Yvette Clark. Like they, I knew them, and they were doing the groundwork. But once you get into the position, unfortunately, you realize like the very people that you're trying to represent don't necessarily vote, right? And right. they're not right. just representing Brownsville; they're representing other communities. So you don't even have the constituent support that you need. Like I could be out here advocating for you, but if you, the people, don't advocate for yourself, if you don't show up and I'm the only person representing 80,000 of you, because that's all there is in Brownsville. Okay. People are looking at you like they don't care. So why why do we care to change anything? Sure, sure. 
Yeah, that's tough. And I hear that not just in, say, New York, but that's the same thing mm-hmm. you hear in places, L.A. and Houston and New Orleans and Miami. It's the same story Absolutely. wherever you are. Uh, but it, it's it's systematic that they've been historically disadvantaged, but underserved. They've been underserved for so long that it is it's the culture and I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, but what is cultural and and endemic in those areas is is the the lack of voting or the importance. I never will forget um, when I was um, on the school board in New Haven, um, my fraternity, we used to do a, um, a voting registration drive. And this was very early on in my um, experience. And and it was the first time that I ever went out to the streets and just to hear so many people say, you know, I had the clipboard that was back then. Well, you know, before there were the the um, iPads and things like that, the, the tablets you could get people to register on. But I had right. clipboard with the paper and you walk up to someone who was clearly uh, voter eligible and they would say, oh, for what? Um, and I just think, mm-hmm. you know, that those are all things that actually the education system either helps to undo or or perpetuates. And so it just exactly. it, it's just it's hard. It's really heartbreaking to see when that happens, because, as you said, you I'm, I'm I have my voter registration card. I'm trying to get you yours. And people like, no, I don't want to do that. Why would I do that? Um, so, you know, I, and I'm, I'm hopeful that those are the kinds of, of programs and programming that you're doing to help not only children, but also families. And that's, that's what I'm seeing in your, I've looked at all the pictures and I mean, just beautiful programming that you have at your school. Um, tell me a little bit about what, if, if you were to say, what's the hallmark of Mott Hall, um, what would you say it is? Um, so I would say it's, it's always been the culture, but the culture has always been rooted in the people. And so for me, the, it's always been the brilliance of the children. Mm -hmm. Um, that's, that's always been the driving force. You know, people will call it the beacon. It's always been a beacon of light in Brownsville. But for me, what shined every single time was the children and being intentional about creating a safe environment that was responsive to the needs of the children and just understanding the community in general was what I saw a school to be a representation of the community. So Mm -hmm. we recognize that, you know, the average income when I opened the school in the project was $11,000. First thing I thought of, why aren't we teaching the kids financial literacy? So we started Mm -hmm. an entrepreneurship program, right? Every child has to take it in order to graduate. When we looked at the opportunities of providing children with mental health services, I also said the adults needed it. Because there's a stigma, especially when it comes to people of color receiving mental health services, and we need Absolutely. to normalize it. Yes. So I put it in our school building. We don't have access to fresh fruit. We, you know, don't have access to adequate um, uh, health care. So what we need to do in our own school is we needed to have our own garden and teach the children how to cook the food so that they could teach their families how to be better at taking care of themselves, right? 
So for me, it was what are the issues, how can we resolve it, and how can we use education as a place of providing the information that will be liberating to our children. And to your point around voting, what I decided to do was teach children the importance of their vote Mm -hmm. and have them engage in conversations with elected officials about why you're not showing up. And then telling them when you turn 18, you have an obligation to register to vote because you can't change anything if you're not actually an active participant in the process. That's right. right. So, you know, that, that was the importance of the work. And so how difficult was it to get people on board? You said you were, you, you established your street cred, you went out knocking on doors and, and getting people mm-hmm. in. I mean, how difficult was that? And the reason I'm asking that question is because, you know, sometimes people think that you, what, when people are successful, they come on and they say things, and I haven't experienced this, but that some people feel that it is all you got to do is, and I know that that's not a statement you're going to yeah, make. Yeah. It's like all you got to right. do is this because it, it is really difficult. And I tell my students, you know, I'm director of a program that, that uh, prepares uh, school leaders that I say this is not for the, the faint at heart. Uh, this no, is something that is going to take a lot of energy and a lot of fortitude for you to do this. And and the last thing I'll say is this, is that, and I think you are the embodiment of this, is that school leaders, whether you want to be or not, school leaders are community leaders. And you you have to take up that charge. It's not about just getting people to come into the school and I'm just going to educate kids. What you said earlier is that you recognize what the families needed in terms of mental health uh, counseling and, and other, Uh, that's what you have to see. These are full service schools. They have to be full service schools because the, the communities have been left without for so long. So, um, you know, so, so back to my question, how difficult was it then for you? It was, it was, it was difficult. And I'm going to tell you why it was difficult, but then how it became easy. When you live in a community that only shows you that you are a deficit, mm-hmm. right, by way of the media, by the minute you walk out of your, 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 the step of your home, there's police guarding with floodlights. Um, you see black men on the corner from early in the morning. It's not that they're going to work. You don't mm-hmm. have the wine bars. You don't have the family restaurants. Everything that surrounds you says this is all that this could ever be for your life. Mm-hmm. So for me to come in like Susie Sunshine and say, no, you can get more. You can do more. They looked at me like, I hear what she's saying, and she looked like us, but I can't see how it's possible. Mm-hmm. And so I had to, one, dig down deep in my face and just say, God, you placed me here for a reason, right? Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. almost like when you have to take the Israelites from, um, from Egypt. Mm-hmm. All they know how to do is be slaves. So when you're saying to them, you are mighty and powerful people, you do not have to endure any of this. They are so that that post traumatic slave disorder is embedded 
and you you literally have to remove them. So we were intentional. Like when I tell people the reason why we walked over the Brooklyn Bridge, first off, the kids had never walked over the Brooklyn Bridge. Their family members had never walked over the Brooklyn Bridge, and they lived in Brooklyn. I wanted them to see what it was like to cross into something that for them was the unknown, but it was possible, even when they were afraid because they had never been over a bridge. Right, Outside of right. maybe once or twice being in a car. And then surrounding them with adults who said, I got you. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to let you fall. That's like the first breakthrough. Like, they're like, okay, we overcame that. When we would take them to Harvard, it wasn't like I wanted every child to think that they can go to Harvard. I want them to believe that there are opportunities and options you can have, but choose wherever you want to go. Because mm-hmm. someone is going to look at you because of where you come from and the color of your skin and say, you can't do that. And you could say, mm-hmm. well, I actually went to Harvard when I was in sixth grade. I know what it's like. I sat in the prof- with the professor. We actually took a class. Right. When you come with that attitude and someone says you can't do something, you'll draw off of when you were 11, you saw bigger and better. And if you break the chains of how they think now as they become adults and they have their own children or they're surrounded by their own families, they could speak into those individuals' possibilities. So it took them a lot to see what I was saying, but I also had to remind them I'm no different than you. Mm-hmm. I know what it's like to live in poverty. I know what it's like to survive, you know, being raised around gang members. I know what it's like to deal with crime and, 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 and dealing with death. I know what it's like to lose family members to health issues. I know I'm, I'm you. There's no difference. Mm-hmm. But what I want you to know is what people have done for me, I'm here to do for you. And I don't want you to leave Brownsville thinking you have to, that's the only way you can survive. I want you to learn, and I want you to come back to your community, and I want you to help change and transform your community. I want you to influence the next generation because we have an obligation to do that. And so because my message was consistent and I showed up and I, I was proud and my kids were proud, it was easier because people saw how they stood with such dignity. You can't just call them students. They were like, we are scholars. You can't mm-hmm. say those mock kids. No, we're from Mount Hall Bridges Academy. Like, they were very clear on who uh, okay. they were. Yeah. You understand? Yeah. And so that, that, that's the importance. It's never easy. And people, people think, like, we look at, at things in such quick gratification because of social media. If it doesn't happen in a day, it doesn't happen in a month, I, I failed. It's taken decades and centuries to disenfranchise us. We can't, it's not going to happen overnight. We have to be That's reminded right. constantly That's right. of our value. That's right. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I mean, we, we've gone over, but it, it has been well worth it. I, I am so thankful that you, you came on, and I know that there are a lot of people who listen in, uh, but they're not only that, people who are contemplating opening schools. You wouldn't believe Mm -hmm. how many times in the course of a month people call me and say, I'm thinking about opening a school. Um, You got a minute, you know, and, and, and some of the same stuff that you are saying about what's motivate, what motivated you is motivating them to do something different and to change the narrative. You know, it's not just Mm -hmm. about jumping in and doing the same thing. And that's what I challenge my students all the time. It's like innovate. It's not doing the same thing. You do the same thing, you're going to get the same results. 
you have the same expectations, you're going to get the same. So I, I know, and, and I'm, I'm going to tell you, uh, uh, as soon as it gets warm, I'm coming to Mott Hall Bridges Academy. I want to, I want to see this up close and personal. Um, I, I am so appreciative of you sharing. I'm sure the listeners uh, learned a lot from you too. Um, and so um, my, give my best regards to your scholars and um, please communicate to your teachers thank you and to your the your leadership team for the work that you're doing it's it this is not easy during this time it was never easy but it is very difficult at this time i know people are doing having great sacrifices uh personal and professional sacrifices uh during this time so uh we are really appreciative uh appreciative to, to you uh, for those families. And so we're going to be listening, reading, and watching what you do. So before we go, tell I know people out there wondering how can they reach you? How can they follow you? Tell us a little bit because I know you have your own organization, the Lopez Effect. Tell us a little bit about how to reach you and, and look out for you. Well, definitely. Thank you so much again, Brian, um, for the opportunity of having this conversation with you. Um, something that you said as you were ending was around people wanting to open up schools. And I want to encourage folks that if you do decide that that's something you want to do, want to do don't take the savior mentality. Mm. Because oftentimes people want to open schools so that they, you know, they feel like they need to save people. And I want mm -hmm. you to understand that the individuals we're serving are very resilient. Mm -hmm. You have to know the community. And sometimes we walk in with the ideas of how we can liberate people. We need to learn and listen to the people so that we can best serve them and create what they need in mm -hmm. order to feed them and to be transformative. So that, that, that was just weighing on my heart. Yes, thank you. Um, thank you. Of course. Folks can find me at the Lopez Effect. That's on every social media site from LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, they can find me there. And um, I do have a website, The Lopez Effect. Um, you know, you can find updates about ways in which I provide consulting services. I do coaching, and um, I do a group coaching that supports um, aspiring and current leaders in a cohort model so that they don't feel isolated because this work can be very isolating and you can feel very defeated um, and so I want women of color specifically to know that they are not alone and to mm -hmm. receive the tools and resources they need to thrive, not just survive. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. And again, um, there are people I'm sure are going to reach out to you and we thank you. We're going to watch until I get to Mott Hall Bridges Academy. Go well, stay well, Nadia. Talk to you soon. Okay. You too. Thank you.